Welcome once again to Church of the Good Shepherd. I'm glad that you have joined us uh, for service today. And um, we are in a season uh, between All Saints and Advent, the season leading up to Advent, in which uh, you can see the uh, liturgical colors have changed, you know, and, and, and All Saints is actually a time in which we remember those who have gone before, remembering that the church consists of all the saints. Uh, past, present, and future. But it's also a time in which, you know, we are um, reminded of uh, a certain future that all of us face. So I've entitled my sermon, Coming Soon. And in in some ways, it's sort of, um, 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 you know, an anticipatory uh, season that we are in. As we look forward, you know, it's it's a season that leads up to Advent, but Advent, as you know, uh, comes from the Greek word Adventus, which means coming. And Advent is a season that we not just remember Jesus' first coming, which we uh, then commemorate in the season of Christmas, but also are reminded of the fact that Jesus promises to come again, that He is coming again, and He's coming soon. Now, I don't know about you, oftentimes uh, you walk down a mall and you see, you know, they'll advertise coming soon, this particular store. You're not supposed to anticipate, but I, I, I don't feel that sort of an, uh, um, um, anticipation or necessarily excited about it because nowadays every mall has the same store everywhere you go. You know, so even if it's coming soon now, I, if it said coming soon in and out burger, I'd be very excited. <laughs> you know, something of that nature. But some of us of a certain vintage, we used to go watch movies, right, in the theatre. Remember those days? <laughs> no more, no streaming and on the like, you know, it was a, a, a social event. I used to always arrive early because they had trailers. And then they tell you, Akan Datang, right, coming soon. And you get excited about the next uh, uh, new movie that's coming out. Me in particular, I used to love James Bond movies, you know, look forward to the next James Bond movie coming out. But in some ways, you know, Jesus uh, addresses the question of what's coming up uh, in this passage we are looking at in John 20. But before we even look at that, you know, this issue of Jesus' coming again can be problematic. You see, Paul pointed out to the Thessalonian Christians, he warned them, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You know, and and this was uh, uh, an issue in Paul's day, in the first century, early church. People were uh, worried about Jesus had already come, and maybe you missed it, or, you know, he had come, and and all kinds of uh, um, effects to that. He says, no, let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And this is really pointing to the Antichrist. Uh, yeah, I know one of your CGs, you all have been studying the book of Revelation, so you're probably filled with <laughs> ideas of what that is and what that means. Uh, but... You know, it wasn't just a problem in Paul's day. It's a problem even in our day. I don't know if you've ever seen this cartoon. The end is not near, it's here. (laughs) And you see this guy is uh, carrying a newspaper which says December 21st, 2012. I I don't know if you remember in that year, 
there were people who were thinking that the world would end on December 21st, uh, 2012. Of course, it's come and gone, and we don't think that anymore. It was based on the fact that the Mayans had a long calendar, which lasted uh, 5,125 years, and it ended on December 21st, 2012. So they thought to themselves, oh, the Mayans must have known something, the ancients, right? And that must be the end of time. Actually, they had a calendar which is not unlike the Chinese calendar. You know, you go through the zodiac and the 12 uh, animals, and then when you reach the end, you go back to the start again. And it's cyclical. So it was meant to restart the calendar after that. So it was nowhere foretelling uh, the end of time. But I remember growing up in the 90s, which was the time in which I responded to the call to ministry. And one of the key events that happened in the year that I, I responded to the call was uh, happening in Texas, Waco, Texas. A guy by the name of David Koresh and uh, Branch Davidians claimed to be the Messiah. And, uh, you know, in the end, because he had uh, contravened certain laws, the, the FBI and the uh, ATF and all kinds of federal agencies had, you know, uh, put a siege around the compound. But rather than be arrested, he blew up the whole compound. And, you know, a whole bunch of people died because... You know, he believed he was the Messiah come again, or he was convincing people of that. But it's not confined to the West, because you remember not long after that, in 1995, there was a sect called the Am Shinrikyo, uh, and they had a sarin gas attack in the Tokyo subway. A bunch of people died because this uh, poisonous gas was, was released in a subway car. Can you imagine in the MRT on your way to work and suddenly you encounter something like that. But it turns out that sect also had a doomsday uh, mentality and they believed it was the end of time. And that was part of what they were trying to do was to usher it in. And then later on in 1997, there was another sect called the Heaven's Gate Doomsday Cult. Now this is even more far-fetched. They believed that one of the comets that was passing near the earth had a spaceship behind and they thought the way to catch a spaceship is to die. So they all committed suicide in this mansion in San Diego, California. Now, all these things we think and we see, and you know, sometimes the end uh, times, because it's, it's something that has come up again and again, you know, it's, it's sort of like the boy who cried wolf. Right? Too many times you get false alarms, you start to get a little bit uh, immune to this whole question of the end times. But I'm here to tell you, and based on what Jesus is teaching, that it is real. And it's something that as Christians we need to think about and we need to prepare ourselves for. Now, it's oblique in Jesus' uh, um, um, teaching here in um, uh, Luke 20, but I think it's critical uh, to look at it and to understand what it is and to prepare ourselves for it. And that's why, you know, in the, our church calendar, we have this season in which we are always reminded as we come to the end of the church year that there is an end. Uh, to history. But we pick it up here in verse 27 of Luke 20. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Now, up to this point of time, we knew that there are Sadducees somewhere in the background. But most of the time we've read through this uh, Gospel of Luke, you know, in these last few weeks, uh, months actually, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke because the lectionary takes us through it. Uh, you see that Jesus, time and time again, are tested by religious leaders. And most of the time, they're Pharisees and scribes. Scribes are an offshoot of the Pharisees, as uh, I think um, Evangeline had so ably uh, pointed out to us. But the Sadducees were a different uh, tribe 
so to speak, different sect of Judaism. They were um, thought to be much more well-connected. You know, they had uh, connections to the high priest, and even in certain cases, the high priest would be a Sadducee. And uh, some people think that they were secular. Actually, they're not secular, uh, from what I can understand. You know, why would they deny the resurrections? Because they searched Scripture, the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is not very clear that there is a resurrection. It alludes to it. I mean, in Job's, uh, um, the reading from Job, we saw that after my flesh has wasted away, I will see the Lord. There is a, a pointing towards the resurrection, but it was not a clear doctrine from the Old Testament. So for them, they rejected the resurrection. And so this is why they came to Jesus and they were clearly trying to trap him or test him. You know, they said to him, uh, 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 they came to Jesus asking him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, a man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So, now they bring this hypothetical before him. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, died without children. The second and the third, and likewise, all seven, no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And I'm thinking to myself, after the first three, you know, marry her and they died, I think I'm the fourth brother. I say, uh, maybe not for me. <laughs> you know? But nonetheless, the reality is this. They were trying to you know, put forward a, 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 a philosophical question, trying to trap him, trying to uh, uh, tease it out. You know, it's not unlike um, uh, the thought experiments people sometimes uh, throw out. You know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? <laughs> or the question is, if God is almighty and omnipotent, is it possible for him to make a rock that's so big that he can't lift it? Right? All these types of questions people uh, use as thought as experiments. In their case, they were putting it forward because it would be obvious, at least the answer would be obvious that impossible. You know, either he says you married all seven, which you know, uh, doesn't make sense, or he would have to admit there's no resurrection. And so, you know, they were quite self-satisfied here. They put him a, 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 a real test before him. I, as I was reading it, I came across a, um, um, a quote from C.S. Lewis where he says, Nonsense is still nonsense even when we speak it about God. <laughs> you know, that there are all kinds of questions that people can put forward that actually, you know, don't make logical sense or uh, are, are still nonsense even though you apply it or try to apply it to God. And basically, as we begin to look at this passage, what Jesus was pointing out to them is that your paradigm is too small, Sadducees. You are thinking on this plane of existence, life as we know it here now, you're trying to extrapolate to eternity. He's telling them, you are asking the wrong question. See, verse 34, he continues, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, that age means the age to come or eternity, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. So he is pointing out that ultimately you don't understand the way we experience life here now, in the afterlife, it's going to be a different experience. There are no doubt some corollaries, and I'll talk about that later, uh, towards the end as I conclude the sermon, but 
um, you know, it's, there is a disconnect. There's a discontinuity. That what we experience here in uh, life here on earth will be changed in eternity. You know, new and better and improved. And first, you know, you may ask, why is there no marriage in heaven? Some of us may be disappointed, especially because, you know, we, we want to be, uh, continue in that relationship with our spouse, whom we love very, very much. Verse 36, Jesus points out a couple of reasons, 36 and on to 38. He says, For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. I.e., if we do not die anymore, there is no longer a requirement to procreate. Right? Because nobody dies. You know, one of the reason we have to procreate is because there needs to be a replacement. <laughs> Right to continue to uh, uh, multiply and fill the earth and, 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 and manage it and steward the earth as God had created it. And so procreation was a, a key uh, um, reason for marriage. And therefore, since there is no more dying, there is no need for procreation. But then he goes on to say this, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. You know, this is his way of referring to the passage in Exodus 3 where G, uh, Moses encountered the burning bush. Yeah? In those days, they didn't have chapter and verse, so you can't say, you know, read Exodus chapter 3 verse X, Y, Z. You know, it's, it's, it's the way of referring to it. It says, you know, it's the passage about the bush and everyone would know exactly what he's referring to. He, he says, Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to Him. In other words, that God, you know, continues to be our God in the life that happens after. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead. They are now alive in Him. And that there is an eternity. But what he's also pointing out is that now you will be with God. God will be with you. Which is the second reason we have marriage, isn't it? We think of marriage as the uh, um, pinnacle of human love, of finding someone that you truly love and you want to give your life to, and they give their lives to you. Uh, a full companionship. But you see, all human love is a pale comparison and a shadow, but ultimately also points to the true love, which is love in God. Because why? God is love. And we know that at the end of the time, God promises to be with His people. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And therefore, in the resurrection, you know what uh, uh, we find in this day and age, why we want to have a marital relationship is because we have <laughs> a capacity, don't have the capacity to love widely. You know, because of sin, there are a lot of people we can't stand in this world. <laughs> let alone love. <laughs> you know, but it is only uh, uh, um, in the eternity when all will be made right, where all sin is done away with, where we ultimately reach perfection in terms of love and understand perfect love that we are in relationship with God and with one another perfectly. So that special relationship you enjoy with your spouse becomes multiplied. You know, uh, uh, all, all across... I was sharing with the uh, service yesterday. This is why I often tell 
uh, Christians, you know, you make sure you get your relationships right, especially within the body of Christ. Right? Your brother and sister in Christ, you, you, we are told we need to learn to love them as we love God. Why? Because God probably has a very good sense of humor. You know, this person you hate in the church, God will put their mansion next to yours. <laughs> You'll be neighbors for all eternity, so you better get it right now. But uh, I'm, I'm joking, but not really. Okay. <laughs> so what does this mean for us? What does eternal life ultimately mean? You know, understand this. The Christian concept of eternal life is not reincarnation. Okay, it's not this uh, idea that if you at first you don't succeed, try and try again. <laughs> That's not the Christian understanding of eternal life. Neither is it just uh, about immortality. You know, I've heard people say, ah, who wants eternal life? You know, more of the same, more of this life, no thank you. <laughs> right, because life is hard, isn't it? There's pain and there's suffering in this life, and if it's just extending more of the same, it's not really a very attractive proposition. But ultimately, what Jesus promised, right? In John 10, 10, He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life is what is pointed to in the resurrection. And the way to abundant life is through death and resurrection. You know, that's what Paul alludes to in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, this is the NIV, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. That there is an ending of this current life, an ending of life as we know it, but there is a new life to which we are promised, which we need to look forward to. Now, in this passage in particular, Paul actually talks about this new life and what it means and, and, and points to it earlier in the chapter in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 5. He says this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, he's using that as an uh, um, allusion to our bodies. All right, The tent is the body. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, that we have a new dwelling place. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. So, you know, it's what we have here and now is a tent. What we are promised in eternity is a building. You know, think, if you are living in tents, wouldn't you be longing to live in a building? You know, tents leak, tents can get blown away, tents don't shelter you really from the sun, just slightly, but it's burning hot, certainly no aircon, right? <laughs> you know, and compare that to the building you're going to receive. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In other words, there is a continuity as well, right? It's not going to be something that's so very different that uh, we, we, we won't enjoy it. I, you know, growing up, I used to have this impression, I, uh, going to heaven, eternal life, I'm not so sure I want it. You see the popular depictions, right? It's these angels in white robes playing harps on clouds. It's like, <laughs> what's, the, what's the attraction of that? Right? And that's not uh, what it is. There will be a new and improved material existence. That life ultimately is preparation for eternity. He's, because he ends this passage saying this, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. 
That's why we talk about uh, how important it is to live life in the Spirit, because the life in the Spirit gives us a foretaste of heaven, shows us what eternal life is about, why the gifts of healing, the gifts of you know, uh, deliverance, uh, tell us that all these things, the pain and the suffering we suffer here on earth, is not permanent. That the Holy Spirit comes to us as a deposit, as a promise of things to come. Why as Christians we ought to embrace life in the Spirit, why we ought to uh, uh, understand and, and enjoy it. Because otherwise, many of us become too invested in life in the here and now. We think this is all there is and we live as if this is all there is. And anyone knows, you know, you want to be a wise investor, you don't invest in something that's temporary, here today, gone tomorrow. Right? There is a need to invest in things that can and will last. And this is where I want to bring my conclusion to, because I think if we think about last things, you can't do any better than going to the last book in the Bible, and the second to last chapter especially, uh, Revelation 21. I was thinking about it because the other day I was talking with Jairus and he was telling me about this study you all have been doing in uh, Badok CG in, in the book of Revelation. And I remembered, I have all my notes from my <laughs> class in Revelation. And I realized I wrote a paper on this, you know, like most students, uh, every, you, you, you do it, I got my A, then all the information sent back to the <laughs> teacher. But fortunately, we have computers, so I've kept <laughs> my notes. I went through uh, my, my, my passage paper again and looked at this passage once again uh, in preparation for this sermon. And let's look at this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, John said in his vision of uh, um, what is to come. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. He said he saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now in the Greek, there are two words for new. One is neos, uh, where you get the matrix neo, right? <laughs> neos means something new completely. Never seen before, new. But the other word for new is kainos, which means new and improved, which means it's something like the old, but it's much, 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 much better. And that's what is being used by John. This is the new heaven and the new earth. It's not unlike the old heaven and the old earth. There are continuities, but it is new and improved. right? And we see what it looks like. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying no pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Again, that word, kainos. And he, also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You know, I remember uh, growing up in my teenage years, there was a, a Christian song which says, you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. Talking about people who are hyper-spiritual. 
right? That, that you only think about heaven and you forget things on earth and you have no earthly use because you're not very practical. You're, t- you're, you're, you're too you're living with your heads in the clouds. But may I suggest to you, and I wrote this in my paper, <laughs> that unless we are heavenly minded, we can be of no earthly good. Unless we understand that there is an end that God has prepared for us, we will not know how to live the Christian life or life as God designed it for us. That to live life in the here and now, we need to understand what awaits us in the end, which is why you know, God gives us a picture in His Word. Two implications, two applications in a sense, you might say. First is this, understanding the end gives us a perspective on life in the here and now. Especially because life here and now is filled with suffering and pain. It's very interesting to me, if you look throughout church history, it's in times of greatest persecution, times in which the church was under great stress and duress, times in which the church understood Jesus' teaching that in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world, that they began to study last things, study, you know, apocalyptic literature, as it were, book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, are two examples of that. I, I've told people this, when I took this class in seminary, my professor, uh, Professor Rod Whitaker, is, uh, a, an acknowledged Johannine scholar, he studies John, you know, that's all he does. And he was also a Greek professor, so he knows Greek backwards, I mean, he... I. I'm convinced he dreams in Greek. <laughs> you know, that's how conversant he was uh, with, with, with uh, John and, and all of John's writings. His very first sentence in the class that we were sitting down to, he says, you know, I've been studying this book of Revelation for many, many years. And I have to admit to you, I still don't understand it. And I was thinking on it, oh dear, what hope do I have? <laughs> <laughs> this learned man who was in his late 60s, who's been studying John all his life, says he doesn't understand the book, you know. But he said to it another phrase which, you know, stuck with me, and I've repeated it so many times with so many of you. He said this, but if you don't understand anything else about the details of this book, understand this. In the end, God wins. And that gives us a perspective on life. Because there are times we live in life and it seems like evil triumphs. There are times we live in life, you know, and our prayers aren't answered and we always think, oh man, Satan seems to be so powerful. God seems to be so powerless. But when we look at last things and we see in the end, we see that God has a plan and a purpose. And even though we don't understand everything that's going on here and now, we know the fact of the matter is God wins. And that ultimately, He will make His dwelling place with us. And that He will be our God. We will be His people. You know, right throughout Scripture, there is this um, uh, motif that uh, starts from the Garden of Eden, where it starts in a garden and ends in a city or a temple, if you look at Revelation. But it's the same thread that's running right throughout Scripture that God's desire is to be with the people He has created in His image. 
That was his plan in Eden, which got messed up because Adam and Eve blew it, right? They disobeyed. Sin entered the world. And because of that, there was a separation with God. But God, time and time again, wanted to dwell with His people. That the, the, the uh, people of Israel wandering in the wilderness had a tabernacle in which God's presence was acknowledged and, and where he, he dwelt, at least in their minds, that God was dwelling with them. And then by the time of David, David wanted to build a temple, but God said no, but his son Solomon did. Built the temple where they believed God dwelt with them. And then the temple was destroyed, but then it got rebuilt in Jesus' day. And you know, but the, by that time, we see in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among them. That word dwell is this word skinny, which is used here about in, in, in Revelation uh, 21, uh, verse 3, where he says, Behold the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell, skene, with them. That God, you know, has this longing to be with his people, and that he will eventually make all things new. And eventually, God wins in the end. But you see, if we understand this, and it gives us a perspective on life. Not only to those of us who are suffering, that we have something to look forward to, but also to those of us who have become too comfortable in this life. We find ourselves rooted in the here and now. We are reminded this is only temporary. In some ways, it's an illusory mirage. It will pass away. You know, trying to hold on to this life is like trying to you know, uh, uh, transfer the, the sea onto the sands. Right? You try and scoop up water and by the time you get to your when I was a kid, you, you build and you try and make a, a, a little pool down there and you try and bring the water there. You know, it slipped right through your fingers. Hardly any of it gets through. And you know, I've talked about life being a preparation for eternity. One of the important things that we need to find in this life is to find an appetite for God. That relationship with Him because we're going to dwell with Him forever. And that is the longing all of us have. You know, uh, um, we are told that we have... Uh, uh, um, a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And I absolutely believe that. A, a hole that can only be filled with God. May I suggest to you, if you don't find heaven an attractive proposition, maybe it's because your relationship with God is not where it needs to be. Eugene Peterson, in his uh, commentary on Revelation, uh, called wonderful title, Reversed Thunder. It's a devotional uh, um, commentary, so you know it's not scholarly in the way it's meant to be written so that you can read Revelation as a devotional uh, um, guide. He said this. Let me find his quote. Where is it? Yeah, there. If we don't want God or don't want Him very near, we can hardly be expected to be very interested in heaven. If we have no appetite for God or we don't think much about Him or think of Him, it's no wonder heaven doesn't hold an attraction for us. That's the first implication or application. But the second is this, that knowing what we know about the end, it changes how we perceive our mission as the church here on earth. 
You see, again, when you think about the uh, mandate in Eden to be fruitful and to multiply, that was God's uh, uh, encouragement to Adam and Eve and to all humankind to make sure that you extend the dwelling place of God. That you, you know, extend the place of God's dwelling. And even though Adam and Eve failed, the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. Right? Jesus came to reconcile man to God. To extend His dwelling place that God came and He dwelt amongst us. But that mission hasn't ended. That's why He calls the church the body of Christ. That we are meant to continue the work that Jesus began 2,000 years ago, that we commemorate when we come to the table of our Lord, that His body was broken for us, His blood shed for us to reconcile us to God. And ultimately, you know, this is the solution to all of life's problems. I'm not being uh, um, uh, simplistic when I say really the answer to all the problems in life is Jesus. Because you stop and you think about it. Our greatest need, of course, is to be reconciled to God. But may I suggest to you this broken relationship with God is the uh, cause of the... Uh, or, or, you know, ultimately uh, at the root of all our human problems. Because of sin, we don't relate well to one another. You talk on a macro scale, you know, in, in, in global warfares, right? It's a problem of relationship. Because relationships have broken down. People won't talk to each other uh, and, and, and negotiate and find, you know, mutual solutions, win-win solutions that they want their way. And you just, it trickles on down, right, to relationships in the workplace, relationships in the home, relationships in the neighbourhoods. That ultimately, this uh, call to reconciliation and to restoring the relationship with God is really the solution to all of life's issues and problems. Now, I don't want to be simplistic about it and say that's all we need to do as a church, but let's be frank, that's the mission God has given us, right? The, what is often called the Great Commission, to therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, teaching them to obey all that I have taught you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. If we understand the end, we understand how to live life in the here and now. To gain perspective on life, but also to gain purpose in life. To continue that which Jesus has begun, and to see it to completion. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word which sheds light in dark areas. Allows us, Lord, to know the steps we need to take to live life as you have designed it. And Lord, as we reflect on end things, end times, Father, I pray 
on the one hand, that we not be gripped with fear, but on the other, also, Lord, that we not become complacent, but live our lives in the light of eternity. Thank you, Lord. Help us to do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.